You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 112 of a Life in Ruins podcast, where we investigate the careers of those living life in ruins. I am your host, Carlton Gover, and I am joined by my co-host, Connor Johnnan. Apparently, David is on an unexpected journey. Some dwarves showed up. He got recruited to deal with some sort of flying lizard. I don't know what the deal is. But today, we have with us, once again, Dr. Devin Pettigrew graduate of the University of Colorado Boulder, who has appeared three times already on episodes 18.2, episode 19, and then to talk about his dissertation, episode 75. And today we have are blessed with Devin's presence to talk about another recent experiment that both me, Connor, and David got to take part in, as well as Donnie Dust and some others, Chance Ward, Tom, don't know Tom's last name, uh, and uh, Hanson. That's what I thought, Tom Hanson. And Phil Britton. Um, but today we're going to be talking about an article that came out relatively recently within the past, came out August 2021. So last, you know, beginning of fall called the On the Efficacy of Clovis Fluted Points for Hunting Probosidians by Aaron et al. So just to start us off, Devin, how you doing, man? I'm doing pretty good. You know, job search is, is amazing. It's so, so inspiring and and fun. He says with zero sarcasm. Yeah, you know, going to school is uh, quite—it's quite a lot of fun in comparison to, to what comes immediately after, especially if you're trying to go the academic route. So that's where I'm at. Can't relate. Um, however, <laughs> this is uh, true. Uh, yeah, I'm going to kindly tell you to. Fu- right Uh, but but more but more seriously so i guess you know we've been actually you reached out to us put this on our radar months ago and we've been talking about it for like eight months now having you on the podcast to to chat about this article and kind of explain some of the main points that are made the data that's used and how it could be better and and fortunately we were able to do this experimental project with you recently up in the mountains uh, and to highlight some of the methodologies that could be used and then some data that that you've gathered uh, gathered collected right right. to kind of show the the efficiency and efficacy of actually of Clovis points. So I guess just starting us off, could you give us a, a brief summary of Aaron et al's claims in their article in sure. uh, the Journal of Archaeological Science, Report 39, 2021? Yeah, uh, they, they kind of approach this topic from two different directions, one being the archaeology and the other being an experimental approach or approaches, I should say, because they actually compile a kind of a range of experimental data. And they're looking at uh, impact damages on stone points in terms of the archaeology. Stone points associated with mammoths and, you know, how frequently are they impacted? Typically, if you launch a stone point at something and it hits something hard, it's going to break because stone stone is very hard. It takes a nice edge, but it's also brittle. So they're looking at frequencies of impact damage on closed points and later types of points associated with kill sites. And then in terms of the experimental portion, which is what I would like to focus more on, they're compiling data from a number of different experiments, including a couple of my own. And, but mainly they're focusing on a controlled experiment that was performed at Kent State, where they tested some different shapes of Clovis points. They weren't you know, if you picked it up, you wouldn't immediately say that's a Clovis point because they they took chert and they ground it on lapidary equipment to, to shape like a Clovis point. And then they shot those into clay, into pottery clay as their target. And they had a previous experiment to try and validate pottery clay, which is really important to do if you're going to use a, a target simulant as a flesh simulant. It should be, you know, you should show it's, it's actually a valid flesh simulant. And they just looked at the the range of penetration that they were getting into that clay target. The other experiments they they looked at included various types of targets, a lot of ballistics gelatin targets, and a lot of uh, and a few experiments with actual animal carcasses, like the one I performed on the bison, where you're actually doing what we would 
call instead of a controlled experiment, like a traditional lab controlled experiment, you might call it more of a naturalistic or actualistic type of experiment where actually launching darts by hand or shooting actual arrows into an animal carcass. So they, they compiled all of that and they just um, took a broad look at like mean penetration depths um, and then compared that with the anatomy, the anatomy of proboscideans, of mammoths, to get a sense of how Clovis projectile equipment would perform in a hunting kind of scenario. I guess to, to really quickly summarize, they found that Clovis points have a lower frequency of impact damage than you know Clovis points found associated with bison do. So the ones that found associated with mammoths weren't as frequently impacted. That's kind of a real broad overview of that segment. But they also, in terms of penetration depth, they were kind of getting mean, like 20 centimeter deep penetration, which they're saying, basically what they're saying is they don't penetrate as, as well as we, we think they ought to. And there's all sorts of, you know, there's a history to this where Clovis archaeologists, paleo archaeologists have, have thought that paleoindian points were like the epitome of, you know, a really well-designed hunting armature, stone hunting armature for hunting. And they're saying, nah, not so much based on what they're, what they're finding. That history starts at least at 1989 with George Frizen going to Africa and, and, and stabbing a proboscidean with a, a Clovis point in the classic stabby, stabby, I don't know. Kind of <laughs> well, like, I find it interesting. Like one, they cite David, they cite David's thesis and I think they mischaracterize it. Because they talk about like recent studies show that projectile point that has a small tip cross section and like is optimal. And it's like David was trying to figure out if you can identify arrow points versus Clovis po- or uh, at lateral points based on firing them off a bow. Yeah. So it's like that's not what he was doing. Of course, that <laughs> when he's firing from a bow and arrow, the smaller arrows or the smaller points are going to be more effective, <laughs> especially from a modern, you know, mechanism. It's like that's yeah. not what David claims that's not that's not okay so that actually brings up a really important point a couple of really important points one is that we aren't they all very important points devin uh yes because it's uh, (laughs) (laughs) if if i was the producer i would mute you yeah just yeah just kick him out what what was i saying (laughs) i was gonna try to sound really (laughs) smart and now just totally derailed me. I'm so sorry. <laughs> that's my job, Carlton. Like, <laughs> um, you were saying they brought up some very that that that's a very good yeah observation. No, what right, yeah, what you're saying is a very important point. You're, you're basically you're saying that they they used the data from David's experiment in a way that David wasn't you know setting out to use it, or it's not the those aren't the conclusions that he drew from it. And perhaps more importantly, those weren't the questions that he was trying to ask. And that plays back into the experimental results in a lot of ways, right? How we designed an experiment, we're going to set up an experiment to answer certain questions. A lot of times we're trying to use a hypothetical deductive, deductive approach where we've got a hypothesis we're trying to test and we have a, a very specific experimental design that's that's going to address that. So David's hypothesis was in any you know, anything approaching how they, how they use that data. Now they have a a table of experiments that basically you can make the same kind of complaint about. That doesn't mean that, you know, the way they're using those data isn't, you know, at all applicable to what they're trying to say, but it does, you know, you, you should, you should start off being a little bit careful for that reason. Well, I want to take a point, like actually kind of talking about that same table. They mm-hmm. only use one of David's points when he used multiple. I think it was like 30, wasn't it, Connor? It was like he used a large amount of the same style of side notch point, but in 30 different sizes. And in their table, they just have one. They have, they have one entry, but it has seven samples for it. But I think he. But they're he not shot. the same size. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, but he shot multiple sizes. I thought he definitely shot more than seven. So they're only picking a couple examples out of that. Yeah, and, and they're, they're and, reporting like a mean average speed, right? Yeah. From that, 
Yeah, and they're also reporting a mean mean penetration depth from my bison experiment, but they only used the results from the shooting the bow and arrow. And if you recall, the bow and arrow used in that experiment was kind of a, it was like a 50-pound Cherokee bow with a lightweight cane arrow, river cane arrow. Um, not the kind of bow and arrow setup that if you were a modern hunter and you were going to kill a bison, and somebody said, you know, you can do this hunt, here's a bison, what are you going to use? And you brought that out, somebody would think you were nuts. They also pulled together mean penetration depths for my hog experiment. And here's the, the main point. Bows and arrows, just like bows and arrows, atletals adlittle, and darts are highly variable weapons. They come in a lot of different sizes. They carry a lot of variable range of momentum, kinetic energy. And what we set out to test in that hog experiment was a range of atletal and dart sizes, including replicas of darts from the Southwest, the U.S. Southwest. These are replicas of what we would call archaeologically a basket maker weapon equipment from the late archaic in the Southwest. So, you know, roughly two to 4,000 years ago. And they're pretty light. The, the darts are small and light. They're only like five feet long or so, approaching six feet long in some cases. And so I, I was really interested in these weapons for quite a long time, and I wanted to know, could you hunt a bison with one of these? And so when I did my master's thesis, I really wanted a bison. Actually, I wanted one from my since my uh, honors thesis for my undergrad. Uh, at that time, I got a dead, bloated cow. And then for my master's thesis, I got a pig instead of a bison. But we may do. The point is, though, that those darts do not perform very well on a pig. They're not the kinds of darts that you would want to hunt a pig with. Just like the, the arrows were pretty, pretty light for a bison, although you could actually kill a bison with one of those if you didn't hit a rib. And as a result, those samples of weapons, of uh, lightweight arrows, of those lightweight basket maker darts, unsurprisingly, they didn't perform that well. They didn't p penetrate very deeply. Basket maker people were never hunting hogs. This is a fact, because hogs did not live in the Southwest. They were probably hunting mountain sheep, desert mountain, bighorn mountain sheep, for you know the majority of the, like the bigger game they were hunting. They were also uh, apparently killing each other with them, and they were hunting rabbits. And they may have been hunting animals as big as elk, and occasionally they may have been hunting bison. But the, the issue here is that the weapon system isn't necessarily matched to the prey species that we're shooting them into, and they weren't supposed to be. We were testing, this is my point, the hypothesis was, you know, basket maker weapon systems could not kill a hog or basket maker weapon systems could not kill a bison. Both of those are, what we found out was like, if they hit ribs, you're done. That animal's gone. If they have a really sharp point on there and they and you land them just right, you could kill an animal like a hog or a bison. But this affects the penetration depth. So if you're just gonna get mean penetration depths from those experiments, because we used a lot of those types of darts, you're going to end up with a low mean penetration depth. If, on the other hand, you did an experiment where you were throwing big, heavy darts at a goat, we, Donnie launched a six-foot dart entirely through a goat. That was so epic. I mean, it. yeah, yeah. I was there. It got very icky because it went through intestines. Yeah, it was gross. Uh, I, I do not recommend that at all, and I'm done testing goats. But uh, it, it hit right behind the ribs, and it just, like, the whole dart just launched through that goat. And if that was all you were testing on that kind of animal, your penetration depth would be way, way higher. So, you know, what you're asking and the kinds of, of iterations of weapons that you're using is really important in these experiments, and it's going to uh, dramatically change the experimental results. Because a big thing they're talking about is they have that histogram under that table saying that, like, this is where Clovis points fall based on the accumulation of all this sort of data. But like you're saying, there's no contextualizing it into, like, why they're firing. Are they all testing penetration or are they asking different questions? Because that's like that. I think that's where it starts their argument is that 
okay, Clovis points don't really penetrate that well based on all this reported data. But like you're saying, there's no contexting, there's no contextualizing. You don't know enough about the atlatls or the darts or anything like that. Right. To really feel comfortable, comfortable asking that question. Well, and, and they mention, you know, on page eight, you know, quote, there are documented experimental instances of full-size darts penetrating all the way through pig, bison, or caribou carcasses. But these individual instances are anomalies, not frequent or even semi-regular occurrences. Now, that's, I don't, based on my experiments being Devin's Tonto in a lot of these cases, it's like I've seen in every time we've done one of these experiments, a dart has gone through, if not all the way through a, a carcass. I put one through a bison. You can see that on yeah. YouTube. Donnie put that one on through a bison, and that's on the same YouTube video. Yeah, Carlton, you got like almost a meter of penetration through a bison. And because it went through, it went in between ribs. And, and going back to what you said earlier, I threw a dart, it hit the rib cage, it was an obsidian point, and it exploded like a frag grenade with like... yeah. One mil, not even a millimeter of penetration. Like it hit something hard and exploded. Yeah. And so that issue of con- contextualizing these studies, it, it, you know, it's important when making claims like this because they have a lot of studies presented. And I would highly recommend, you know, everyone actually read the studies that they talk about because this is, it's interesting how the data is being presented. And I don't know if, I highly doubt it's meant to be nefarious. And we're speaking of this because like Devin is actively quoted in all this. Our podcast host is actively quoted in this and we've all engaged in these studies. Like we're coming at this from a lens of, Unlike some of the other things we've critiqued, we actually kind of know what we're talking about. (laughs) Yeah, this isn't the Hopewell or the Revolutionary War. Like, we get this. Like, this is like a food. (laughs) My proudest moment is putting that dart through a clean through a bison. Like, don't take that away from me. Um, It looks like we're clean through this segment, though. And we will be right back with (laughs) episode 112 of a Life in Ruins podcast. Welcome back to episode 112 of Life in Ruins podcast. We are here with Dr. Devin Pettigrew, and we wanted to start off this segment of the podcast really focusing on the experiment that they did. So we kind of characterized and talked about how they're they're summarizing other people's experiments and using their data to kind of really start asking this question if Clovis points are very effective effective at, at penetrating things. But there obviously is two parts to this. So, David, do you mind explaining, you know, kind of what they did for their experiment to kind of also test this efficiency of, of Clovis points? Sure. Yeah. Basically, they have, they have a setup there in their lab that they've used for, to ask a lot of different questions, to perform a lot of different experiments. And they have, uh, so the specifics of their setup is they have a 29-pound draw compound bow and it's mounted on a a mechanism that that will shoot it consistently called a spot hog hooter shooter i believe any case oh my god (laughs) that's what it's called yeah yeah that's the name of it i mean that's yeah it's a product that that's and that they talk about in their papers i think it's funny anyway that's (laughs) but the, the nice thing about that is like it's as repeatable as you're going to get. One of the problems we have doing these controlled experiments is they're to meet this. We're trying to meet this like mythical scientific, you know, ideal of having a repeatable experiment and no repeat, no experiment is actually like perfectly repeatable just because there are like all these subtle differences that occur and you can never like do it exactly the same way every time. But for this thing, you know, you can go buy the same bow and you can go buy the same thing that they're using. So, so that is nice and a smart approach. Um, what was the draw strength on the bow that they used? 29 pounds. And what's the recommended pound strength for hunting elk in Colorado? So they actually just removed the, uh, the recommended poundage. But I think most compound bow hunters would tell you at least, well, most traditional bow hunters would tell you at least 55 pounds of draw. And I think most compound bow hunters are going to be using something more like 70, 80 pounds of draw. Yeah. And why is that um, important? Well, because it results in a, a different arrow speed. The, the poundage of bow is, it, it gives you a rough indicator of the arrow speed. 
So people are going to say, you know, you need a hunt with at least a 55 pound dropout. Well, that could result in different arrow speeds depending on the specific material of the bow and the design of it, whatever, yada, yada. There is, but the goal is to get enough speed on an arrow with enough weight and a, a, an efficient enough armature on it that it's going to penetrate the animal that you're after and, and uh, kill that animal. And uh, you, as an quickly. experienced and successful hunter, what would you use a 28-pound bow for hunting? Well, a 29-pound compound bow, you could probably feasibly go out and hunt like small deer-sized animals with that if you have really efficient broadheads on there, but obviously not an elephant. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it, yeah, and I think probably there you'd run into a lot of hunters that would tell you to use a heavier draw bow as well, even for hunting like you know little deer. Right, and even for ethical reasons, hunters want to be able to dispatch and harvest animals with the least amount of pain for an animal. Correct. Use a lower draw strength, that animal could suffer. So, Correct. Yeah, you're trying to get pass-through shots. That animal needs to drop as quickly as possible, both for an ethical reason and so you can actually retrieve that animal. So, Are, are there any studies of, uh, like, maybe parts of prehistoric bow, bows and, like, their theoretical, like, draw weights they would have as part of that? Yeah, I mean, and they range just like modern ethnographic or more recent ethnographic bows. They range, you know, from the 40, 45 pound range up to, you know, 70, 80 pounds. So, yeah, uh, mostly what you're looking at there are, are replicas of artifacts. You replicate it because you obviously you can't draw like a thousand year old bow. Uh, you replicate it and then test the poundage. So you're hoping to, to your replica is close enough to tell you how that boat performed. Fair enough. And so they're they're in a lab. They have a rig set up to fire a bow from the same position to try to control the experiment as much as possible. It has a draw strength of 29 pounds. What else is going on here? Uh, and they're shooting it into clay. I can't remember the, the specific distance, but it's pretty close, something like five meters. And their arrow weighed about 72 grams. And they're shooting these, like I said, these ground stone points into pottery clay. And I, I did mention that they tried to validate it. They did a, an experiment where they had basically the, the exact same setup. And they took store-bought meat, at just like these, these beef roasts, and like lined them up and shot those ground stone points through the meat and through the clay. And they got similar penetration. However, they also shot an arrow with a regular pointy field point on it. So just a round little point that you would shoot for target. And that penetrated deeper into the clay than into the meat. And we're also concerned here about how sharp their stone point actually was because like I said, it wasn't napped. It was um, ground to shape on lapidary equipment to I think um, at least 60 grit lapidary equipment, which is like a really rough grit potentially as high as 200 grit. But I recently heard a podcast with Ed Ashby, who's a bow hunter, saying you could ground a, ground a broadhead with like 60,000 grit, and that makes it pretty sharp, but not as sharp as like if you just drop it on leather. So like 200, 200 grit? Uh, I don't know. So we don't, we don't know how – the point is we don't know how they compare in terms of their sharpness to uh, like a napped edge. And if it was sharp, it might penetrate better into meat. Okay. So what's the issue with using clay? And, and you know, as an extension to that, like, are there also issues using ballistics gel, which is another common target material? Yeah, and there's a there quite a few of the experiments they put in their table use ballistics gel. To, uh, so this is something I looked at really closely, and there was a past experiment that did shoot crossbow bolts and arrows into ballistic soap, which is used commonly in Europe, ballistics gelatin, and fresh pig carcasses. And basically, th there's two really big issues with the ballistics gelatin. The first being that in this experiment, they, just like in the Aaron, actually the lead author is Key, Key, Aaron, and others experiment shooting groundstone points into clay and into meat, as well as field points in the clay and in the meat. In this experiment, they found that field points penetrate deeper into those target simulants. 
the field point penetrates deeper into ballistic soap, deeper into gelatin, and a lot sh- more shallowly into the pig carcasses. So it would penetrate like 40% um, as deeply or less deeply into the uh, into the actual carcasses than it would into ballistic gelatin. When they shot broadheads into those targets, they got the opposite result. So that the broadheads actually penetrate a lot more deeply through the pig carcasses than into ballistics gelatin or ballistics soap. And so what that tells us is that those two target simulants are not scalable to flesh. They're supposed to be flesh simulants, meaning that they scale to flesh. So this brings up the second problem, which is that firearms research has for years studied target simulants and found one that works for bullets. That being widely accepted, 10% ordinance, collagen-based ballistics gelatin. So basically to make that, you're going to take a pig or you know, cows when you butcher them, you're going to take parts of those animals that you don't, that, you know, you don't save for the grocery store. Tendons, bones, uh, hide, those get processed really extensively in a factory with a lot of pipes and hot water acid extraction and you end up with like pure collagen protein that's what you're using for the gel but you have to use the right amount of it it's not that you can just it's not that there's just like a thing out there called collagen protein and it's like flush you have to mix it just right so you get 10 percent of that mixed with distilled water you mix it all up just right following all the proper protocols you cool it just right in the, you know, just to the right temperature, which is four degrees Celsius. Pull that out, and then you have to calibrate it. And there's a, a protocol for calibrating it. Once you've done that, then you can actually test it. And then you're going to get similar penetration depth for bullets into that material as into pig flesh, pig muscle, right? That's what we mean by flesh is fl- muscle plus like some gristle and stuff in there, flesh. So that material has been determined to be scalable. What we're seeing basically is that ballistic gelatin, even though it works for bullets, bullets are very different from arrows. And arrows travel at much lower velocities. They have like a sharp cutting edge. Uh, we expect the sharpness to do something. So those are materials aren't scalable for the, the projectiles we're, we're trying to study. And just to summarize the results quickly, I've got... Uh, Doug and I have a paper that will be available as a preprint, at least when this podcast is up. But I can summarize quickly. We shot broadheads with, they were the same size, same shape, same weight, one very sharp, one extremely dull, into ballistics gelatin. This was actually a synthetic version of ballistics gelatin, and into pottery clay. And in both instances, there's no difference in the penetration depth. We also shot arrows with broadheads, field points, so these are target points, and then blunt points. Unsurprisingly, the blunt point bounces off the ballistic gelatin. However, the blunt point penetrated about 50 centimeters into the clay target, whereas the broadhead penetrated about 17 centimeters into the clay target. The same broadhead on the same arrow at the same velocity penetrated almost 80 centimeters through a bison. So it's another example of how these two target materials aren't telling us what we think they are. You know, archeologists have not, we've never gone through the extensive experimental regimen, all the research that we need to do to ensure that these target media are scalable, that they are showing us what we presume they, them to be showing us. We've never done that. You know, we're compare our work to uh, firearm terminal ballisticians, and it's just like I don't know, we're we're kids playing in the sandbox. It's kind with of a ridiculous. BB gun, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, like, uh, completely outclassed, right? And, and I think that's a a larger issue in the field of professional archaeology, where where we yeah kind of these copycat scientists, where we we took this idea of what is science without really testing. I mean, I mean, part of being an archaeologist and anthropologist is we rely on other folks expertise and we try to apply it to our own work. And and clearly what you're saying is that it's not necessarily analogous that we need to actually look at like, yes, there's ballistics gelatin that works specifically for firearms, 
and we haven't tested that applicability to uh, weapons that humans have used throughout the course of, of time prior to, to firearms, right? Yeah. Which, I mean, that's that's alarming, right? We have a whole table uh, in this yes. paper that uses all these different materials. And what you're saying is like actually <laughs> using carcasses is, is, is the best analogy because – the, the clay and the ballistics gel, there's so much variability in making ballistics gel. Yeah. That in archaeologists we never, talk, we, we never talk about that. <clears throat> yeah. Frequently we just say we have ballistics gel too. So we just need the SCA, <laughs> we just need the SCAs to to purchase a bison farm specifically for yeah. experimental purposes. <laughs> right? Yes. Um, but, but there's also there's no not saying that we couldn't find a ballistics gel mix alternative that works for arrows and whatnot it's just we haven't done the research deep into we haven't done the we haven't done the bullet research essentially where people are doing that right so you won't find ballistics gelatin i think this is part of the the point is it just it's the nature of the material ballistics gelatin and clay whatever formula you find of those materials isn't going to work and clay is extremely problematic as well because it's very hard to control how it's formulated. When you go buy clay, when I went and bought clay to test, they're like, which kind do you want? We have over 30 different varieties and they're all different. And I'm thinking, okay, in the original paper, they only said we had a low fire pottery clay. You know, they're not really going into any depth about what those clays are made of and they can't because the potter isn't gonna tell you specifically what goes into that clay. It's like a recipe for, you know, it's like grandma's recipe. You got to protect that recipe. So, so it's impossible to repeat it. Yeah. So, but, but those materials aren't going to work. We got to find something different. And, uh, what I proposed, what I looked at was, uh, forensic studies of knife, knife stabbings. Forensicists are pretty deeply interested in like how humans murder each other with various things, including knives. And uh, they've tested that because it's actually useful to, to know, like, how efficient is this knife versus this knife? Because you may be looking at a criminal case where you've got, you know, two possible murderers. One's a, you know, five foot tall petite female and the other's like a, a six foot tall dude. And, and based on, like, the angle of stabbing and the force necessary, that, that could be important. But how they, how they test those knives is they use skin simulants because skin is the most resistive soft tissue on the body. Uh, so, and it's the first barrier you have to penetrate. It's understandable. Skin is what protects us. Our skin protects us from the outside world. Um, and it protects us from projectiles and things like that. First, you got to get through skin and you have to get through clothing. So they're testing the efficiency with which knives penetrate through skin. And then that gives them a way to compare different knife designs. And that's essentially what we're trying to do in these controlled experiments is compare these different designs a lot of times. What these folks are trying to do is look at overall penetration depth. The, the problem here is that we want to know how analogous this experiment is, right? We're trying to know how these points and these weapons that the points are attached to would perform killing mammoths. So then we need to account for the thickness and resistivity of the skin of the mammoth, the muscle underlying it, uh, how deep is the body cavity, all these factors that are particular to mammoths. So that's the kind of target, unfortunately. We need we need a target that tells us, you know, more about what mammoths are like. You can't, yeah, a, a reindeer is different. And uh, a dog, there were some early experiments on dogs. They were dead. <laughs> Everybody's going to be upset about that. All these animals were dead that were used in the carcass experiments. But... You know, none of them in the table are uh, are elephants or mammoths. So if they like uh, bring back mammoths Clear, and they can breed them, I don't know if they can bring back mammoths or like you know get them semi out of extinction with something like that. You'd be interested in participating with. Oh my god! Possible. The uh, <laughs> yeah, but the media fallout would be horrendous. Can you imagine? Um, <laughs> I mean, even though it was dead beforehand, <laughs> people just don't like this stuff. Let's be honest. That's part of the issue we're running into is people don't like uh, you have an animal that's dead. Even if you're going to eat it afterwards, people don't like it. Right. So based on the the design of this experiment, 
the low poundage of the bow, typical to what would be recommended for hunting something big, what we consider big game today, which is elk, which is still much smaller than an elephant, which is not necessarily analogous to a, to a mammoth. And the kind of target that they used, would you, based on your professional opinion, you know, would you, do, do you think that these, the results they came up with are, are accurate? Yeah. Or meaningful. Or meaningful. Yeah. No. And again, let's think about the target media. If you use synthetic ballistics gelatin like I did, you're going to get very shallow penetration. And in fact, there's, they, they cite a, one of my favorite experiments article by uh, Wood and Fitzhugh where they shot different kinds of points into a reindeer and then into synthetic ballistics gelatin. Um, I find that their experiment really useful. But they calculated, they had three different point types, obsidian, bone with an edge, and then bone with obsidian glued along the edge. And the points that penetrated the absolute best were the obsidian, the napped obsidian points to the reindeer. And the points that penetrated the absolute worst were the napped obsidian points in the ballistics shelf. So what we need to do is take out, if we want to know how those points penetrate while performing against reindeer at the given values of you know, kinetic energy momentum, we need to first remove all those shots with ballistic shelt. Okay, that material may tell us something about something. I don't know what at this point. So there's that problem, and this you know problem carries over to clay. And then in terms of the lightweight bow, uh, Carlton, you were mentioning, they shot a light poundage or, or a, a low weight um, dart, an arrow basically that mimicked like a really small outlet dart that weighed about 72 grams. The really small like basket maker darts I was talking about at the first were that we threw at the pig, those weigh about 90 grams or so. So even what I would consider like a really small outlet dart, their arrow was lighter than that, but they did get it to outlet dart velocities. The result was that it carried about 35 joules of energy. And there was another extremely useful article compiled by uh, Tomka, Steve Tomka, about the endurance of Adlatl and dark weaponry after the bow. And he, he compiled all these um, recommended values of momentum and kinetic energy for hunting animals of different size. And the lowest kinetic energy you want for an animal as big as a bison or, or bigger is 88 joules of energy. So they were they had an arrow of about 35 joules of energy penetrating into clay. I think the result is that we just don't know what those results mean, right? We don't know how to use them. Fair enough. And on that note, we do know we need to close out the segment. So we'll be right back with episode 112 with Dr. Devin Pettigrew right after these messages. Welcome back to episode 112 of a Life in Ruins podcast. We're going to talk this segment about jewels and mountains. Um, so I'm looking at you, Carlton. Hey, man, I think uh, David's this the one going to mountains. Smoking joke. I know it is. I'm trying to flip it on David <laughs> with the dwarf, with the dwarf <laughs> intro that we did <laughs> He's doing some other sort of uh, lizard lizard based research up there in the mountains. But we wanted to talk about continue this conversation and what you're going to do forward on what you're kind of studying now. So uh, do you mind? Because, because specifically, you, we just ended that last segment talking about the required joules, which is a, a measurement of energy needed to penetrate at least big game like bison, and that they were only able to produce something in the 30s range, which what can we kill with? But like you specifically brought us up to the mountains to test. Yeah. How much, how much joules, I, how do I word this? Like we, we joules of energy, joules of energy that all of us could produce by throwing darts at a, at a target. And so please yeah. walk our listeners through why we did it. What okay. did we come up with and who's the champion jeweler? <laughs> sure. Yeah. I guess to start off, there was the bison experiment. We've already talked about that. And, uh, we got up to about a hundred joules of energy. And that was Donnie Dust throwing an ash dart at a bison. Fortunately, that dart was not that well designed. It was like really flexible in the front. And so it didn't penetrate that well. So bison two is coming and I've got some better well-designed heavy darts. But this all kind of plays back into to the questions that I was trying to ask up in the mountains. 
which is, you know, what, what can we, we think of as like a lower range of energy that you can hit with an atletal or that you can get to with an atletal? And can we get above that recommended range for hunting elephants? And so I designed a series of darts, including some of the ones that we're going to use on Bison 2, some heavy darts, some really well-made ones with like... Or was that one really heavy? Well, one, the one was pretty heavy, yeah. The darts range from uh, about 100 grams, 100 grams, 200 grams, in between two and 300. I don't think we quite... We may have hit 300 on that third one. And then uh, an over 400-gram dart, like a 430-gram dart. Uh, so that's a big, heavy dart. I had to use my other hand when throwing it to like lift it in the air before I threw it because I couldn't throw it regularly. Like that was ridiculous. Yeah. yeah it was really interesting being, so I was on most of the time I was like um, on the side of it near the target, kind of helping retrieve the darts and watching all the flight patterns. And that one, it was just like, cause you obviously have the, is it spline? Is that what it's called? Where it's. Yeah. Up yeah, and down. yeah like, called it spine. Yeah. 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 But it, it, it didn't do like that wiggling at all. It was just like, you know, there wasn't like that. Yeah. Like uh, kind of in profile. It was, it was interesting to watch. Right. By spine, we're, we're talking about the flexure of the, the dart shaft. Dart shafts have to be flexible to, to maintain straight flight when you throw them. Because you're not just like taking the butt into the dart and pushing it perfectly in line <laughs> with its uh, with its length. You're your arm is kind of arcing up and falling. So just like an arrow has to be flexible, the arm has to be flexible. Well, so I did look at ethnographic examples of, of dart weights, and they range up above actually 400 grams for Australian, uh, native Australian darts. Some of those apparently even go above 600. So we weren't even throwing like as heavy as, as you could. But but one of the, the points here is that with darts, if you want to get more energy, you have to go heavier. And actually, this is this is true of, of human throwing in general. There was a, a simple experiment carried out in the 70s where they took a bunch of different people and had them all throw, throw balls of like 10 different weights. And the lighter balls typically flew faster, but the heavier ones always carried more energy. And of course, it also depended on the strength and skill of the throw. Uh, so that the highest energy was was achieved with you know the, the most skillful, not just like it's about throwing is about finesse too. It's not just like all muscle. The most skillful and the strongest throwers, and the heaviest balls. So we're trying to do the same thing with atlas. Like, well, what energy can we get to? So I recruited you guys because I wanted to get a range of, of different people throwing these things and, uh, and got Donnie up there as well and threw these darts and we hit about 124 joules of energy. And who threw that one? That was Donnie. And who, what was the second highest? Uh, Carlton, I think he may have hit 117. Yes. I was going to say, if, if you just threw a David out there, I was going to laugh. It was David. It was David. Sorry, Carlton. Yeah. So, um, David, so we're throwing, part of the problem here is we're throwing in front of cameras and the dart, I had a camera looking from behind and then you had to throw it across this backdrop in front of this other camera and there's markings on the dart. So from behind, I'm observing to make sure that the darts are staying pretty straight. Because if they're like way skewed in flight, it's going to affect the uh, the readings. Because you actually have a scale on the dart itself. It's the only way to do it. You have to calibrate that video to the frame rate of the video, and a scale, you know, that's in the the path of the thing that you're tracking. And the only way to do that consistently is have the scale on the dart shaft itself, and have the points on the dart shaft. So I'm making sure they're flying straight, and they have to go in front of that camera. And David just kept like lobbed, lobbing that big heavy one over the, the backdrop. <laughs> but I caught one of him throwing that thing in front of the camera. And it was, he got some pretty impressive energy with it too. So we all kind of did. I mean, we all, we all were able to hit like pretty close to the recommended energy for an elephant. And one thing we should be clear about is that these are the recommendations for modern hunters. 
who may have different, you know, goals or how do you say it? Aspirations, I guess, in terms of like how your projectile is going to perform. Frequently, we're after like complete pass through shots. And uh, what I noticed on the bison was that you definitely didn't have to hit that those recommended jewels to to be lethal to the bison. If you wanted your projectile to consistently be able to to like bust through ribs and penetrate through, it's a good idea to to have those high jewels. But you know, so on an elephant, I think it's possible that there's more leeway than what we're anticipating, uh, especially when you have sharp armatures, because if you have really sharp armatures, they're able to cut through that, even that thick hide. And then once you get through the hide and through the, the muscle tissue underlying it, if you're in between ribs or your uh, projectile is skipping around ribs, you get into the body cavity, the organs are actually way less resistive. So once you get through that rib, those the skin, if your projectile is well-designed and it's like, it doesn't have like big bumps along the shaft and stuff, it's going to slide right on through. Uh, so yeah, I think we may be underestimating these things ability to, to penetrate through an elephant. Well, also like, I think it's important to note this, this whole thing happened. We had my graduation party. We were able to like, it just so happened David and Connor and others were in town and you were able to round up all these atlatl throwers who haven't thrown an atlatl in, in quite some time. And throwing darts we didn't practice with for the first right. time and also changing the weights, which changes the mechanism uh, of how you throw them. And we were able to, in this like really quickly put together experiment that was, I mean, not, but you know, we've done, you've done this experiment before we, we knew the mechanics. It was just like, we were able to round up a posse really quick just and, and illustrate, you know, the point of this wasn't to record penetration depths. That's the point of, a bison right. experiment too, but we're able to initially show that we're able to throw with amateur level at lateral throwers, dart throwers, that we can hit the necessarily jewels required to yeah. take down a modern elephant. Absolutely. And so that's different than like if we were habitually using at laddles, we had our favorite dart, it's our equipment. Like we're all using Devin's equipment that we're not necessarily familiar with and we're, yeah. able, we're able to do it. And so, you know, next step is is bison experiment take two, where we're using the same darts that we used to do with the jewel to to record jewels. And in yeah. that experiment, right, like you had already mentioned in the first one that we had done, which we talked about on this podcast up in Montana, there's a YouTube video about it. We were able to record jewels. Donnie was able to get to a hunt over a hundred with darts that weren't that weight that you had just explained. If you want more jewels, you need heavier darts. And so this next experiment, so it's fully funded, like it's we're Green, go, go ahead to, to do it? No, nah, not quite yet. So that, that's interesting. I, I tried to crowdfund it because granting agencies don't like to, to give you money to experiment on a dead animal. Did you apply to the Colorado Council of Professional Archaeologists uh, scholarship? There's one that's specifically uh, for experimental stuff. I won that one uh, a while back, yeah. Fair. And that, that's what I used for my controlled experiments. Gotcha. But if when this... Bison experiment take two happens. We'll use the darts and we're going to specifically target some of the questions that were brought forth by Aaron at all to test them and be like, well, this is what we found when using it under conditions with an animal carcass. These are the darts we're using. These are the tips. These are the throwers. These are the atlatls. Because your first bison experiment that I will attest to to my dying day was highly controlled in the manner of the technicality of it, the fact that every dart was numbered, every point was numbered, the throwers, the atlatls, the penetration deaths, like your data collection was significant that I that I'm not seeing when I read these papers when you share them. I don't see that same Yeah. Right. I, I just don't see the same. And so I mean granted they have supplementary appendixes that I, you know, it, it's just interesting. Well, I'm like really excited to hope to take part in, in, in part two because it's like this is a really interesting question. And, and you know, like our advisor during your graduation mentioned it's like, you know, he he put your research in this analogy of like Devin's research is, is a small window on this, you know, a giant glass mosaic. But when you actually look through that window, the view that you can see in terms of the questions that you're asking and answering expand your perspective that cover other windows viewpoints if that's if that makes sense it's like it seems like a small niche but what you're able to get out of it has drastic consequences for what we're able to see in the archaeological record as it pertains to you know subsistence strategies which for the majority of our behavior on this planet 
subsistence is like priority number one, like reproducing is priority number two, right? And so you're answering these questions that have significant consequences for how we understand human behavior for the majority of of humans history on this planet over 100,000 years as hunter gatherers. Yeah. And we're going to get, we will get penetration deaths. Those will be meaningful, but, but let's think about the question. I mean, the question is, can you kill an elephant or can you kill a mammoth with an outlet on tart? And let's think about the critique because we've, we've already, you know, talked about their controlled experiment and what that actually tells you. We've talked some about the other experiments they've compiled. And the same way that a a goat is not an elephant, a bison isn't either. So, so we need to to think, and I I do think that like the controlled experiments are, are extremely useful. It's really useful to compare results of like a controlled lab experiment with the kind of naturalistic experiment that we're trying to do with the bison. One way to approach this is to look at what's the skin like on a, on a mammoth? What's the resistivity of that? And can we reproduce that in some way? And then you could actually, you know, reasonably approach this question in a lab. Because if you got, if you can, um, with a darts, you know, if we can say you can carry, you can throw a dart with up to, you know, 140 joules or something like that, a well-designed one. And we're able to shoot that in a lab type setting and it goes and you know it's punched straight through a, a simulant that's supposed to mimic a, a mammoth skin that's much that's actually something you can use so even if we can't do an experiment on an elephant it's going to be you know challenging for those those media reasons i i mentioned people really really like elephants even after they're dead but, well, we know, don't have many of them. <laughs> right. That's, that's another point. And, and elephants also are different from mammoths. Um, and this, this paper, actually, if you want to dig into, like, the anatomy of uh, mammoths, they do a great job, you know, talking about the anatomy and, and, uh, and nailing down those resources. So it's a good uh, review of that topic. Well, yeah. well, to close this out real quick, I mean – for those that are listeners that are in archaeology, we do find Clovis points with mammoth carcasses. So how does this paper, you know, briefly describe why do we find Clovis points with mammoths? Well, there's some issues here where maybe that we're finding Clovis points with mammoths because they punch through past ribs. Frizen said that the ribs are like rounded in the center more where uh, the lungs are, and that's actually what you would target because it's more likely to hit the rib and skip around it. In this paper, they talk about the quote-unquote picket fence of ribs. Like the, the way they present the whole argument is, is um, it seems kind of like they're really they're really trying to push a view. But uh, why is it that we're finding these closed points with these big animals? Why do they have you know different impact fractures and that sort of thing? It is that we find Clovis points with impact fractures. They are, they are projectiles. There is kind of a, a, a movement now in archaeology and in, in paleontology archaeology to, to say, well, these weren't actually that effective, or these weren't even often. These weren't even projectiles. These were actually knives, and so maybe they're finding you know dead mammoths and scavenging them. Read a book called Hunting Caribou: Subsistence uh, Hunting on the Edge of the Boreal Forest to get an idea about uh, the usefulness of scavenging dead animals out on the landscape that you find all the time. Well, Donnie did ask us to go up to the woods with him up in the mountains and wear loincloths. And he, when we asked him about food, he said, it's okay, we'll just scare a couple cats. Meaning we're just going to run yeah. at mountain lions away from their deer kills. And I, was, I right. wasn't sold on that, on his optimism and, <laughs> and like excitement right. to like, I'm going to take all these kids up. We're just going to go boogie woogie with mountain lions and like i've never like, once what? ran into a mountain lion with a deer like oh hi <laughs> sorry to interrupt your meal <laughs> never happened to me once i don't know maybe it happens to Donnie all the time but again we want to think about the target this is a big ass animal right and it, it had to be hard to kill these things and so there must have been even if you were going after them regularly you know hunting them on a regular basis there must have been a greater chance that you're gonna lose that projectile in the body of that animal I mean, it's a big, huge animal. How would you like to gut a, uh, a mammoth? Nah, dude. I, I had my fill with the bison. That was a long day. Yeah. Well, I mean, I can gut a deer, like, 
you just roll your sleeve up and you stick your whole arm up in there like to your shoulder and pull out the guts. With a bison, it's a different deal. And I can't imagine trying to gut a mammoth. So, so there's, there's probably a greater likelihood that you're going to be losing those projectiles in the bodies of those, those animals, either because they come off in the inside and you're just never going to find them, or because the animal escapes. So that's worth thinking about. You know, um, what we're finding around bison kills, lots of broken points, lots of dead animals. You know, bison just dying left and right because they, they drove them into arroyos and, and that sort of thing. And their weapons were effective and they were dropping them on the spot. And in a lot of cases, it seems they were, they were retrieving their projectiles and then deciding if they wanted to rework them and keep them or, or throw them away if they're impacted after that. So that, that could all play into, into this the differences in impact damage and, and why we're, we're finding those more frequently around elephants. But those are just some ideas to, to explore Excellent. and think about. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Thank you so much for, for coming on and chatting with us again. We love, you know, I love picking your brain or, you know, hearing about all this stuff. Cause it's, it's very interesting and we're really excited to see where this stuff goes in the future. And I know uh, I will volunteer the name for the second one. We're going to call it Ralphie go CSU. <laughs> that's funny we got a survey today asking CU students what we wanted to name the next Ralphie so. uh, yeah my, my first experiment was on a hog that was for uh, University of Arkansas and our mascot is a hog and then uh, <laughs> my dissertation was on a buffalo so, so you got to go to a, a university that has a mammoth as a there well Devin, before we end the show, what are a couple sources, books, articles, videos that you would recommend for anyone interested in ancient weapon technology? We already have Aaron at All 2021, Hunting Caribou, Subsistent Hunting Along the Northern Edge of the Boreal Forest. And then we'll put a couple of citations of um, your work and Whitt- Dr. Whitaker's work. And for anyone listening, if you, you know, really go through Aaron at all. That's actually a really good list of sources that do all this. So if you're interested, yeah. definitely go through their citations and, and read them, like, you know, actually read them. But what else, what else you got for us, Devin? Well, I think, uh, in terms of hunting, of course, there's, there's George Frizen's, uh, seminal work, which is survival by hunting. Um, I can't recommend the survival by hunting or, a uh, hunting caribou book enough. I, I really love that. One. And it's hard to think of any that are like really, focused in on the topic of, of ancient hunting, hunting with ancient weapons. But, you know, for bows and arrows, the uh, traditional bowyers Bibles, those are really good resource. You know, one thing to consider is that if you're, if you're interested in this stuff, especially if you're an archeologist and you're interested in studying it, you should really try it. Yes. There's there's a number of different resources on, on how to do that. Um, And so don't look at works like traditional bowyers Bibles or Jim Ham's book on Native American bows and arrows. Don't look at those and think, ah, those aren't, you know, by some professor. I'm not going to read those. They're chock full of useful information. You can, you know, look at them with a critical eye just as you do uh, academic work and, and pull what's useful out of them. But actually using those resources to try out the weapons and then go hunting, just like Frizen said. You know, if you're, if you're an archaeologist and you study ancient hunters, you should really try to hunt some because it'll totally change your perspective. Uh, and, 100%. and, you know, I'm not saying just use a bow and arrow or something like that. You can rifle hunt too. It's, it's very useful to, to get out there on the landscape, see how these animals behave, see how they re- respond to you. And just the whole process of like finding them, butchering them, getting the meat, putting it in your freezer. You know, there are elements of it that's like, that are really closely analogous to the past. And a lot of them that aren't, but it's just, it's a useful thing to do. Uh, to really, you know, enhance your perspective of, of what this is like. De- definitely. Um, and well, so where, where can people find uh, you and all your cool stuff that you do on uh, social media? I, you can find me at ar.atl ATL on Instagram and basketmakeratlat.com. Those are the two places I would recommend. Excellent. Always appreciate you coming on, man. So everyone, we just interviewed Dr. Devin Pettigrew. You can find him on Instagram at ar.otlottle and his website, which is phenomenal, has a bunch of resources and also how to make atlottles at basketmakeratlottle.com. The review. Rate, review, do the thing. I'm not going to 
plead with you. I'm not going to offer you free stickers. I'm going to play the bad cop right now. Those two play good cop and say, we'll give you free stuff. No, just give us a review. You listen to our crap. Do it. <laughs> and if you're listening to us on the All Shows feed, please, please, please consider following us, our individual page, a Life and Ruins podcast. It helps us grow our channel and allows us uh, data that we can pr- uh, give to sponsors and advertisers so we can you know, keep funding this. Um, so please, please, please listen to our show individually. And with that, we are out. Thanks for listening to a Life in Ruins podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at a Life in Ruins podcast. And you can also email us at a Life in Ruins podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. Well, everyone, it's your favorite time of the episode. Um, if you ever make it this far, uh, Connor, what is your joke for us this evening? So my significant other told me to pick up six cans of Sprite at the store. Uh, when I get home, I realized I picked seven up. Thanks, man. All right, we're out. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.